0: Uh, As Heather said earlier on, we're continuing in our uh, Freedom in Christ series, which after this Sunday, we'll have uh, two more Sundays. Next week, uh, Heather will be uh, leading us, and then the following Sunday, Advent Sunday, yes, Advent Sunday, uh, we will conclude our series uh, together. If you're short on presents, there are plenty here on the platform. Uh, uh, No, not really. Uh, uh, But it is coming, and uh, we rejoice at the truth of God who came to uh, earth. Mission and maturity lies at the heart, does it not, of what we believe we're called to be about as a church. And sometimes we sum those two key words up by uh, laying them alongside two key verses that Jesus left us. One key verse we know as the Great Commission. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine, therefore go and make disciples of all peoples, every different kind of person baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as you go and do that, I will be with you to the very end of the age. The Great Commission. Our mission is about that key phrase that Jesus gave us. And then there is another phrase, another uh, key message that Jesus gave us, called the Great Commandment. In fact, those are the words that Jesus attributed to it. And that can be found in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 uh, to 40, and uh, you might like to open your Bible in front of you, and uh, I know these are familiar words, but it's good to make sure it's uh, actually in the book, and not just uh, made up by the person at, uh, at the front. So Matthew chapter 22, if you can find me the page number for the Pew Bibles, that would be great. Sorry? 991, 991, if you've reached for a Bible in front of you in the pew. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Just hold it there for a moment. I would guarantee that if you go out to the shops uh, this morning, where people are gathering and spending their time, most people will be down at the Portman Road Market, all that stuff. If you say to them, what do you really think Christianity is about? They will immediately, almost 99 times out of 100, tell you about some rule or another. It's about going to church twice on a Sunday, or three times if they were brought up as good nonconformists. Sunday school in the afternoon, or it will be about uh, it's about uh, not being allowed to do certain things that the rest of us enjoy. Or it will be a, about uh, uh, another kind of list of moral codes that you need to adhere to. Or it will be about this, that, and the other. Uh, I guarantee it will be all about religion and rules and ritual. People are rejecting a Christianity that they do not understand. I have rejected a Christianity like the one they've rejected. Because I don't believe it's about rules, do you? And religion and ritual. Jesus certainly didn't believe it was about rules, and ritual, and uh, religion. He was always saying to the Pharisees, you've got it all wrong, you've got it all upside down, it's not about rules and ritual. And so like the people out there, I've rejected that kind of Christianity also, because I don't believe Jesus ever came to bring it. What did he say? The first and greatest Commandment. The one thing above all else, the one phrase that defines what this whole movement that Jesus began is really all about is love for Him. Relationship, not ritual. Love the Lord your God. Just a tiny, weeny bit. Every now and again, when the weather's fine. No. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and somewhere else it says your strength, with all that you are, where all that you are is caught up in this love relationship with God. That's what transforms people's lives. And actually, ironically and sadly, above all else, that's what people out there are really looking for. Because they look at the church and they say, there's just nothing real about it. It's just all all do's and don'ts and works and stuff. We want some kind of spiritual reality. So they go to other places where they think they will find a new spiritual plane. And so they've rejected a Christianity that isn't true in order to get involved in things that certainly aren't true. It's not about rules and rituals and religion. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts and all your soul and all your mind. And do you know what? If you did that, you wouldn't need to listen to another sermon ever. Now that's an incentive, isn't it? Honestly. Hey, you've offended me now. If you got that bit right, if you just did that, we could forget all of this stuff. We wouldn't need any of it because we would live... God's way in a perfect way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you say, well I thought it was about relating to others. It is. But you'll see what I mean in a minute. You cannot possibly relate right to others if you're not relating right to God. He is the primary relationship that you and I were made for. And if we keep that skew, skew-whiff, whatever, if we keep that twisted in our lives, we will never have good, open, honest relationships with other people. And that's why, as I said last week, or was it the week before, as soon as uh, 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 Adam and Eve and so on, they fell out with God, they fell out with one another. The two go perfectly hand in hand. So, no surprises what Jesus says next. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. The second cannot be separated or divorced from it. You will not understand this next bit without getting the first because it is the same as it. Love your neighbour as your... All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. We might say, all this church stuff hangs on those two things. All of our life, at home, at work, with our families, in the community, hangs on these. You will not get the second right unless we've got the first one right. So, and notice and just hold it for a moment as soon as you've got it there in front of you. You're to love your neighbor, but there's somebody else in that verse you're to love as well, isn't there? Who's that? Yourself. Don't miss that, will you? Don't miss that. You cannot love your neighbor if you do not love yourself. And we'll come back to that perhaps in a moment. So, relating to others. How do you understand this relationship that you have with God? How do you make sense of it? Is it something that you've earned? No. Is it something that you deserve? No. Is it something that uh, uh, you, you would have just imagined should be totally reasonable and automatic for you because you're such a good person? No. Your relationship with God is totally and utterly defined by God's outrageously extravagant love, isn't it? If God had walked away from this planet that we've messed up in such catastrophic fashion and said, well, I'm going to start all over again. I'm not going to worry about them. Could you have pointed a finger at God and said, hey, that's not fair? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. He could have walked away and said, well, you chose. That's what you chose. You made your bed lie in it. Who got told that? It's really helpful, isn't it, when someone says that? Isn't that the most helpful comment anyone has ever said? You made your bed, go and lie in it. Slap. So, as you begin to define the way God has chosen to relate to us, outrageous grace love that we could not earn and certainly didn't deserve, it begins to say something about the way that we relate to one another. Because the way you love your neighbor, Jesus says, is the same way that you are to understand the love relationship that you are already in with God. So we love because he first loved us. 1 John four nineteen. if you're interested. We give freely to others. We are open-handed, open-hearted, not closed down and tight-fisted. We are open because he freely gave to us. Jesus said those in Matthew. Freely give because you freely received. We are merciful. We don't go around judging, criticizing, condemning other people, taking a record of their wrongs. At least I hope we don't. Why? Because God doesn't do that with us. And if you still think God is sitting up in heaven and he's already clocked up the page of the things that you got wrong this morning, you haven't understood him yet. And until you get that aspect of God in right proportion, you will always live in fear of him. And because you live in fear of him writing a list about the things you've got wrong, you will make yourself feel better by writing a list about what other people have got wrong. And nothing kills a relationship faster, does it not, than keeping a list of what other people have done wrong. When you're in an argument, have you ever been in an argument? Let me tell you, hey, when I'm in an argument, perhaps I'm the only one who's done this. And somehow uh, you stoop so, so low that you reach back to a previous fault. Have you ever done that? Liars. Liars. Come on, Liars. And something that should have been forgiven, forgotten and over. You reach back and say, and you did that as well. Hey, that's low. That's really low, that is. That's below the belt. It doesn't bless. Has that comment ever got you further in your argument? Honestly? No, we're merciful. Why? Because God has been merciful to us. He keeps no record of my wrongs. Now that does not mean that my wrongs are incidental. My wrongs screw me up and it breaks God's heart. And he longs for me to sort out the things that are wrong in my life. Sin is serious, it messes us up, it messes each other up, it messes this world up. God's really tough on sin. But does he list all those things and keep throwing them at me? No. He's merciful towards me. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He's merciful. So we are merciful. Why? Because he has been merciful to us. Luke six thirty six, if you want to write that down and we forgive. Why? Because He forgave us. We cannot do this stuff unless we have understood what God has done for us. Do you know that story that Jesus told, uh, the, the parable about the unforgiving servant? He owed the king an awful lot of money, and the king said, I'll let you off. Fair deal, I'll let you off. Jesus says the servant went straight out and he found someone in the street that just owed him a a few quid. And instead of saying, hey, you'd never believe I've been let off all this money, don't worry about the few quid you owe me. Jesus said that servant went and he started strangling the man who owed him a few quid, demanding it back. Why? What's Jesus' point? That servant had not understood in his heart what the king had done. And he was still in the mindset that if only he could collect all all the little quids that all the little nasty people around him owed him, then maybe he'd still have enough money to pay back the king. What would bring freedom? What would bring freedom was when that servant would understand in his heart he could never ever pay the king back, no matter how hard he tried, so he just had to accept that he was forgiven. And if he didn't ever need to pay the king back, he didn't need to collect all that money anyway, he could let them go too. And sometimes we're tight-fisted and sometimes we're not very merciful and sometimes we're not very loving. And it's because we have not gone in the center of focus of our being exactly what God has done for us. Don't you think? You cannot look at what God did in Jesus You cannot go outside a city wall and walk up the hill and stand by that cross and look into the eyes of of a Saviour who gave up his rights to heaven and died on a cross for you and me and say, whatever, I'm going to treat my brothers and sisters how I like. I don't think you can do that. And that's what I mean about getting our relationship with God right and it affecting the way we relate to others. If we've got that focus right, at the heart of the gospel is a God who came, who loved and gave. If we got that in the core of our being, it would release us with other people in ways untold, I think. I'm getting a little bit excited now, and I've got no idea where I am in my notes, so we'll just, we'll just sort of wander on, all right? Whew. Okay. So, how do we do this stuff? Rights and responsibilities. I'm sounding like uh, Gordon Brown or something now, aren't I? Rights and responsibilities. Ah. Making relationships work is hard work, isn't it? It's not just me, is it? Come on. <laughs> Making them really work is hard work. Dear tech support. Last year, I upgraded from Boyfriend 5.0 to Husband 1.0 and noticed a distinct slowdown in overall system performance, (laughs) particularly in the flower and jewellery applications, which operated flawlessly under Boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5 and Personal Attention 6.5 and then installed the undesirable programs such as Premier League 5.0 and Club Golf 4.1. Conversation 8.0 no longer runs, and House Cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the system. I've tried running Nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail. What can I do? Signed, Desperate. Dear Desperate. First, keep in mind that boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package while husband 1.0 is an operating system. <laughs> Please enter the command http i thought you love mehtm and try to download tears 6.2 and don't forget to install guilt 3.0 update. If that application works as designed, Husband 1.0 should then automatically run application Flowers 3.5 and Jewelry 2.0. But remember, overuse of this program can cause husband to default to Grumpy Silence (laughs) 2.5. Happy Hour 7.0 or Beer 6.1. Beer 6.1 is a very bad program that will download the Snoring Loudly beta. Whatever you do, do not install Mother-in-law (laughs) 1.0. It runs a virus in the background that will eventually seize control of all your system resources. Also, do not attempt to reinstall Boyfriend 5.0 program. This is an unsupported application and will crash Husband 1.0. In summary, Husband 1.0 is a great program but it does have a limited memory and (laughs) and cannot learn new applications quickly. You might consider buying additional software to improve memory and performance. We recommend Hot Food 3.0 and Lingerie (laughs) 7.7. Good luck, tech support. Hey, these relationships things are not as easy as it looks. Not as easy as it looks. And you will notice in a relationship that we default to things that automatically destabilise it. When they get into an argument, those two lovely people, he is very likely to default on criticising her character, and she's quite likely to default into criticising his character, and he's most likely to default into thinking about his needs, and she's most likely to default into thinking about her needs. The Bible says it should be the other way around. Think about Jesus for a moment. In fact, turn with me to that Philippians passage that Alice read to us. Someone yell out the page number. Sorry? 1179? Philippians 2, verses 3 Onwards. Your attitude... Now, let's start at verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Remember, our relationships are modeled on God's relationship to us. Your attitude... Here it comes again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He gave up all his rights. When we think about rights and responsibilities, what did God do? He gave up all his rights his rights. In our arguments, we're thinking about our rights all of the time, my needs and her character. If only she could sort herself out, my needs would be met. That's my right in this relationship. Jesus gave up all his rights, his heavenly rights, his legal rights, his social rights, his basic human rights, even to life itself, dying, death on a cross. He gave it all up. And we so often talk about our rights, don't we? He gave it all up because of his sense of responsibility in love towards us. And we need to see these things, not just in man and wife, but in all our relationships, turned round the other way. God asks me to think about someone else's need, but to think about my own character. But my natural default position is, I dare say, the same as yours. You will think more readily about someone else's character. Ooh, look what they did. Naughty. And your own needs. And God says, No, no, that's not the way I'm modelling it to you from heaven. Think about your character and other people's needs. Imagine what life would be like if everyone assumed their responsibility to become like Christ in their character and to meet other people's needs. It'd be something like heaven, wouldn't it? But we're so often demanding our rights by pointing the finger at other people's character whilst clinging to our own needs. A man and woman who have never met before find themselves assigned to the same sleeping compartment on a transcontinental train. Naturally, initially, they're a little bit embarrassed and uneasy, but they're uh, both very tired, so they soon fall asleep. He's in the top bunk, she's in the one below. At 2 a.m., he leans over down to the bunk below, and it says, "'Excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you. "'Would you mind getting me a second blanket? "'I'm feeling a little cold.'" I have a better idea, she replied. Why don't we just for this one night pretend that we're married? Right then, she said, go get your own blanket. (laughs) Rights and responsibilities. Whose character are you most interested in? Those around you or your own? Whose needs are you most interested in? Those around you or your own. So how do we, how do we, how do we sort this? How do we move away from our natural default? Well, it goes back to where we began, about where the focus of our lives is, where, where our gaze is. Right in the middle of the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, you might like to turn to it. Open your Bible roughly in in the middle, slightly off center to the right, and you should find Isaiah. What page number is it, folks? 690. 690. Isaiah chapter 6. How can we move from being focused on other people's character to becoming focused on our own character? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah tells the story of when he saw God. He says, I, this is my kind of paraphrase, but you can see it there. He says, I was kind of in the temple one day, worshipping along, and the band was going, and, and, and it was all really fab. And I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, verse 1, seated on a throne. I saw Him. I, saw, I looked, and I, I saw Him, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And then he describes a little bit about what that was like. Come with me down to verse 5. What's his response? Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As we look at God, the more we focus on him, the more concerned we will become about our own characters. The more concerned we are about our own characters rather than somebody else's, the better our relationships will certainly be. True? How are we going to get this focus off other people and pointing the finger and, and looking at the speck in somebody else's eye while well, we've got a great plank sticking out of our own? How are we going to do that? By focusing on God, who He is, what He's like, what He's done, the way He is, the way He moves, the way He relates causes us to take our eyes off other people's faults and to look at our own. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5 in the New Testament. We're flipping around a bit. As soon as someone finds it, let's get the page number out. Luke chapter 5. 103.2, page 103.2, Luke chapter 5. And basically, uh, uh, Jesus wants Peter. Peter and his mates have been out fishing all night on the lake. They're fishermen, they're skilled fishermen, but that night they've caught nothing. And they come back, and Jesus says to Peter, "Hey, would you mind? Can I borrow your boat to do some speaking? Because I can get out from the edge of the shore. All the crowd can hear what I'm saying then, if I'm away from the shore." And that's what happened. And at the end of it all, uh, uh, Peter—sorry, Jesus says to Peter, "I want you to go back out." Now Peter was ready to go home for bed. He'd been up all night. Jesus said, "No, go back out." And put your nets down on the other side of the boat. Now Peter knew that was stupid. I mean, he'd been a fisherman all his life. He knew that it didn't really matter which side you... But I mean, the fish don't know which side of the boat the nets are coming down, do they? You're not sure about that, are you? Get some goldfish and watch them going round. Ooh, this is a nice bowl. Ooh, this is a nice bowl. Ooh. They didn't know. Peter knew it didn't make any sense, but reluctantly, maybe because the crowd were, were sort of impressed with Jesus' teaching, and Peter was a little bit about, oh, I'm going, I'll do it. And he gets back in the boat and he goes out and, and he puts the, the nets down the other side. And of course, this is great catch of fish. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, for my wife is a sinful woman. He didn't. He saw Jesus in his glory and it made him think about his own character. And when we think about our own character and exercise our responsibility for our own character, our relationships are in a much better place. And there's more we could talk about responsibilities and and all that kind of stuff. But we're we're just going to Uh, uh, sort of fast forward uh, to the end I think this morning and just pick up what we said about needing to love ourselves. Sometimes we think, sometimes we think that if, if all I'm thinking about are the needs of other people, then my own needs don't matter. Lots of you think like that sometimes you put yourselves at the bottom of the pile in a very negative and unhelpful way. If all these other needs must be met, then perhaps I ought to suffer in silence. No. No. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Let me tell you why that's really important. You see, you will find it quite easy. If someone rang you up, perhaps this morning, and said, hey, would you give me a lift to church? Sure, love to. You'd give them a lift. You would have been glad to have helped, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Good. But sometimes we think, hey, I need help with something. Maybe it's me that needs a lift to church, but I can't ask because I'd be putting somebody out. You ever felt like that? ever had a need that you haven't shared because pride gets in the way what are you doing you're denying other people the right to minister to you in the way you know blesses you to minister to them and we let pride get in the way sometimes uh, and we act all kind of puffed up and godly that uh, well, i'm not telling anybody i'm going to suffer in silence And then we deny other people of reaching to us in the way we are grateful to have the opportunity of reaching to them. Do you see what I'm saying? It's got to move both ways. And that's why Jesus said you love your neighbour as you love yourself. That's the only way it makes sense. Because if you don't let your neighbour love you, you're denying him living in the fullness of what God has for him or her. In just the same ways that if you don't love your neighbour, you're denying yourself that privilege too. So God's been speaking to me a lot lately about how we, we just let pride get in the way and, and we don't want to share what's really going on. We don't want to be honest and open about some of the needs that, that we've got because, we, well, because pride just gets in the way. And we have to agree with one another that our needs are legitimate needs, well, usually. And it's good and proper that we share them with one another. Otherwise, we will never be able to love our neighbours as ourselves. The high calling to which we've been called. And so to sum it all up, what's God like? He's got a generous, open heart towards us. Generosity. Generosity. Open-heartedness. That's life's little secret, isn't it? It's more blessed to give than to uh, receive. You'll try telling your kids that this Christmas. but I hope you've understood that in life as you've grown older. It's much more blessed to give than to receive. But sometimes it's right to receive, so that in other people's giving to you, they also might be blessed. And it goes full circle. A farmer and a baker had an arrangement to exchange a pound loaf of bread for a pound of butter. Sounds like Suffolk. It was going well for a while until one day the baker thought he could take one little pinch off every loaf and make a little more profit and nobody would know the difference. Difference. His profit started to increase for a while, but he noticed that his butter supply was starting to dwindle. So he went to the farmer and confronted him, saying, you're not bringing the same amount of butter you used to bring. The farmer said, I'm doing what I've always done. What's that? asked the baker. Well, I take my scale and I put your pound loaf of bread on one side, and the same measure of butter I put out on the other. Jesus said, the measure you give is the measure it will be given back to you. My character first, other people's needs first. Whenever we default back to the other way around, It is the absolute antithesis of what heaven teaches us. And no wonder our relationships struggle.